Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. I went on a pretty great adventure a few weeks ago, and it wasn't in a car. It wasn't like a road trip somewhere. I wasn't out in the wilderness. I decided to go where few men have ever gone before. I decided to clean out the refrigerator at our house. I just, there was so much like leftover stacking up and I didn't know where anything was at. And so I just decided, I'm gonna, has anybody done this? Like, I'm just gonna take everything out, put it on the kitchen table, clean out what's in there, and then the stuff that should go back in, we're gonna put back in. Have you been there before, done that before? And so I'm doing this and I grab this, the first pickle jar, the first of many pickle jars, the first pickle jar I pull out of there, it's this big old jar, in the middle of it is floating one little pickle not even a whole pickle. It's one of those sandwich slicer things that you put on. You know what I'm talking about? Going hamburgers or sandwiches. And I thought to myself, whoever was the last person to make a sandwich and use these was like, I'm just so, it's so packed. This sandwich, I couldn't, I couldn't bear the size of a nickel to go in my stomach. So I'm going to put this whole jar back in the refrigerator. We ended up having about six or seven jars of pickles of various kinds and various fillings of pickles in the jars. No, I did not combine them for anybody who's really worried about that. And then there were, I don't know if parents, if you do this at all, but sometimes when you get frustrated with your kids, they won't eat their meal. What we'll do at our house is I'll say, you're eating that tomorrow, and we'll wrap it up and put it in the fridge. <laughs> yeah, they didn't eat it the next day either, just so you know. And there's like plates that people have eaten off of that are almost empty. It's like you couldn't take that out of the fridge, put it in the dishwasher, and then there's other stuff that I don't even know what it is anymore. And then I came to the mystery item. You know the mystery item? You're cleaning out your fridge? I looked at my wife, she was over at the sink pouring stuff out as I pulled jars out. I said, Shan, what is this? She says, do not open that. To which, of course, I put it back and didn't. No, of course I opened it. So I pulled it, I go, I start peeling the thing open and I saw some pink substance. And I wasn't sure what it was, but then next to it was some white stuff that I think wasn't originally there. It was starting to grow in there. I've done some detective work, put time frames on, meals that we've had. To the best of my knowledge, I think it was fish at one time. But to be honest with you, it was unrecognizable. Now, why do I share that with you? Well, today we're talking about sex, right? And we started talking about it last week. Here's the problem coming into a topic like this. For many of you, what I'm going to talk to you about from the Bible will be unrecognizable compared to what you've experienced and what you've seen. Because we've made sex the way that God's designed it to be used, unrecognizable today. We live in a sex-saturated culture. It is everywhere. If you were here last week, you heard some horrible things that are happening in our culture. Kids being sold for their virginity for $300,000 in the United States. Apps for nine-year-old kids to have oral sex after school. That is not how things should be. In the second service last week, I shared a few statistics. Let me share a couple with you today just to give you an idea of what we are experiencing for sex. The National Survey on Drug Use and Health estimated that in 2008, so a little bit dated stat, there were 1.9 million cocaine users. According to the CIA, there are an estimated 2 million heroin users in the United States. They estimate that about 600 to 800,000 of those are hardcore addicts. Compare these numbers to 40 million regular users of online pornography in America. So we're not talking about Fifty Shades of Anything, not talking about hotel movies, not talking about all the porn that's out there, just, just internet pornography. 
Neurological research has revealed that the effect of internet pornography on the human brain is just as potent, if not more so, than the addictive chemical substances such as cocaine or heroin. One psychiatrist before Congress said this, we have devised a form of heroin 100 times more powerful and given unrestricted access than we protect it as a freedom of speech. A couple other stats. In case you think pornography doesn't impact your family, then you are in the very small majority. So it's 47% of families in the U.S. report that porn is a problem in their home. 47%. 56%, the majority, of divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in porn. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. And there are many addicts, and oftentimes we run to the help of the addict in churches. But listen to this stat. 70% of wives of sex addicts could be diagnosed with PTSD. Church. What we oftentimes think of when we talk about sex is unrecognizable compared to what God has said in His Word. And so the question we have to ask ourselves today is, how can we, in our homes, in our bedrooms, in our churches, restore God's good gift of sex? If you have your Bible, that's what we're going to talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we were looking at chapter 6 last week, where Paul started off talking about the negative things with sex, and his overall command was this, flee sexual immorality. And remember before that, earlier, a couple weeks ago in chapter 6, he said, do you not know? These people aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then several of the things he listed were sexual sins. That's sexual immorality, adulterers, homosexuals. So sex is a powerful thing. And remember, in the context I've told you, in, in Corinth, there was the temple of Aphrodite with a thousand temple prostitutes. You don't think some of them were now members of this church? And some of the men in this church had visited that temple? So for some of the people that I'm about to, I'm about to read this passage that Paul's addressing, Sex was the greatest pain they've ever experienced in their life. And then they've heard Paul teach things like, hey, if you, if you have sex outside of marriage, it's like joining Jesus with a prostitute. Flee sexual immorality. So don't be surprised when I tell you that they had come to the conclusion, isn't it better, isn't it just more spiritual just to not have sex at all? Because what they were looking at wasn't God's plan for sex. And listen to what Paul says to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and so they wrote Paul, and he's writing them back, answers to some of their questions. And notice, remember last week I told you some of the things that were put in quotation marks in some of our more modern translations, because biblical scholars agree pretty, not, there's never 100%, but pretty unanimously that these statements are being made by the Corinthians, and Paul's writing them back to them. Here's another one of those statements. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. They had written him that. And he writes back, but because of the temptation of sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. It doesn't mean that singleness is bad. Let me keep reading. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. And he's single. We're going to see that. But each has his own gift. So singleness is a gift from God. One of one kind and one of another, verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it's good for them to remain single, as I am. But 
If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So remember, Paul's writing to some folks here, and you saw in verse 1, they're saying, if sex is so powerful and sex is so dangerous and it's caused so much pain and so many lives, maybe we just shouldn't do it. And to them he says, if you're single, yes, you're right. But if you're married, no, you're wrong. So it's, it's complicated. It's not just this formulaic thing. You see, God, knowing how powerful sex was and knowing all the abuses that we would bring, still designed it. I read this quote by Elizabeth Elliot this week. Let me read it to you. She says this, Who of us, given the chance to arrange the world like our, to our liking, would have had the powers of imagination, the courage of the Creator when He conceived the idea of sex? We cannot suppose that He overlooked the potentialities, the pitfalls, the high risks that would accompany it. He saw them all. And he made a woman suitable, fit in every way for a man. And so God knew. God knew all of the power, all of the danger, all of the things that would happen. And here's what you need to know. God's not against sex. He's against sexual immorality. And not clearly stated, but implicitly implied upon what was said to the married couples here in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is that sex is God's good gift to celebrate intimacy. And that's our main overarching point today, that sex is God's good gift to celebrate intimacy. A relationship that's already intimate, sex is the way that we celebrate that intimacy together, as the two come together as one. And so you look around our world, and you look at this passage of Scripture, and you see in verse 1 what they were saying, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You think about all the messages that are out there about sex. Everybody's talking about sex, just in case you didn't know. Kids are talking about sex. Kids are talking to your, if you're not talking to your, if you took them out because you're like, I'm not ready to have this talk, somebody's talking to them about it, just so you know. TV's talking about sex, radio's talking about sex, internet's talking about sex. You know who's not talking about sex? The church. If the church is talking about sex, you know what they say? Cut it out! Stop! If you're a teenager, you're going to go blind, something's going to fall off, like we're going to scare you really bad. Like, just don't do that. And if you're married, yeah, go do that, have some kids, but we're not going to talk about it because somebody might think it's actually enjoyable. Don't. And so what we do is we shroud sex with all this shame and all this guilt. Sex is God's good gift. He created it. God is good. He designed it. It is good. We've just taken it out of its context and misused it, and it becomes incredibly dangerous. So what does he say? He's, he's addressing them, verse 1. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and so they're writing them about sex. And they're saying, isn't it better just everybody to be celibate? Like, just, just all stop having sex with one another. He doesn't even get into, like, uh, you got to have some kids, disciple. Like, we're going to procreate here. He doesn't get into any of that. He said, it's good. They said, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And, the, and then he, he gives them interesting answers. He says, yeah, if you're single, yeah, and I wish that you were all like me. He's single. So here's what we need to know about singleness. Singleness is not bad. And so church, married people and single people, know this, just like, this become part of our DNA as a church, that your marital status has nothing to do with your spiritual status. So when you talk to single people in the hallway, your job is not to be a matchmaker for Jesus, okay? <laughs> That's not the goal. 
and stop saying stupid stuff. It's like backhanded comments to single people. Like, oh, I don't know why you're still single. Like, you're actually normal. Uh, what does that mean about everyone else? It's a terrible comment. Take that out. Because here's what's happened with our, our warped and twisted views of sex, that we start feeling like sex is a need that everybody has. Sex is not a need. I'm sorry, husbands, I didn't mean to ruin that for you. Uh, if you're saying to your wives, I'm going to explode, someone's going to… No, it's not like water and air. Like, you don't need sex. Jesus never had sex. He was fully human. Paul's saying here, I wish every… There are benefits to being single, and we're going to talk about them later, that freedoms that single people have that married people do not have. And so being married is not the ultimate goal in every person's life. Some people are gifted for a season for singleness, and some people are gifted for a lifetime for singleness. And so singleness, Paul says, yeah, that's good. And if you're, if you're single, then that means celibacy. That means no sex. That means no oral sex. That means no computer sex. That means no, no sex with another person. But if you're married, if you're married, then sex is good. And he goes on in verses 2 through 5. In fact, he even talks about frequency here. He says, it's good. You should do it. You should do it regularly. But see, so many of us have heard these messages that shame sex, that even married couples, they go into it thinking, like, there's many times what will happen is married couple get married, and a lot of times the guy's really eager, so I'm going to stereotype here. And sometimes what will happen, because all the shame that was there, and we're not supposed to do it this whole time we're dating, that the young lady will then say, I thought I had to learn some things when I got married, but I thought they were mostly mechanical things, but what I actually had to learn was that sex is actually okay. They're actually allowed to have sex. Like, it's a, it's a good thing that should be celebrated in a marriage relationship. There doesn't need to be guilt, but here's the problem. There's no switch that you flip after your wedding day. That bad, 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 bad. Flip the switch. It's good. All that stuff's conditioned, and so if we want to restore sex to God's good gift to where it was supposed to be, then we need to paint a vision that was God's vision for what sex is supposed to look like. And so what, is, what does the Bible say? And you know what? There's positive and negative images of sex all throughout the Bible. There's people that abuse it, and then there's always a cost. And there's people that use it, and it's incredibly beautiful. Let's go back to the beginning. What's the creation pattern? God created, and it was good. He created, and it was good. He created, and it was good. And then it's like, not good. Not good for man to be alone. So then God creates woman. And Adam is like, that is not a rhinoceros. <laughs> like he's named all the animals. And then he's looking. And I don't know which one he was thinking. Pterodactyl? Like I don't know what he was thinking. But he's like, wow. That's incredible. And then what does Genesis say? Genesis 2.24 for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to… Wait, Adam didn't have a mother and father. Eve didn't have a mother and father. God created them. They just created them. They were the first people. He's setting a precedent for this is how marriage is supposed to look from now on. He designed it. He's got a patent on it. He gets to say how it works. Doesn't matter how we vote, just FYI. One man and one woman, and how do they seal this? How do they, how do they consummate this marriage? And the two shall become one the first picture of sex that we have in the Bible. And then we've got people abusing it, and it causes problems. And then you've got, you've got, if you think that sex is bad, read Song of Solomon. It's a whole book, and it doesn't teach you how to evangelize, FYI. And it's not telling you how to have a better quiet time. It's very erotic. It's not pornographic, but it's incredibly graphic, which is possible, by the way, because sex is a good thing. 
And we see in Proverbs chapter 5, the guy who writes Song of Solomon, that the Song of Solomon's all about, he and his woman, he's having a talk with his son. You can call it the talk in the Bible. You want the talk for your kids in the Bible? Read Proverbs chapter 5. The beginning, the first 14 verses, he's warning about the dangers of sex. He talks about the adulterous woman. It's really interesting. He doesn't talk about what she looks like, but she'll lure you in with her lies. And it's not because women are bad. He's talking to his son. And so you could flip it if you're talking to your daughter. The seductress outside of marriage. But then listen to what Proverbs chapter 5 says when he's talking about the positive picture, starting in verse 15. It says, drink water from your own cistern. Oh, it's poetic, by the way. It's incredibly graphic, but it's poetic. Your cistern, uh, at that time, uh, a cistern was underwater water source, underground water source for you. Imagine working out in the fields all day, agricultural society, you're so thirsty. It was rare to have your own cistern. But notice this is singular. You got one. You've got this God-given desire. You've got one source to satisfy it, just one. Listen to what he says to his son. Running water from your own well He's talking about sexual satisfaction from your wife. Should your springs overflow in the streets? Your streams of water in the public squares? It's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain, and that's a euphemism for the male sexual organ. May your fountain be blessed. May you, interesting choice of words, rejoice in the wife of your youth all your days, even when you're older. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. Not much left to the imagination of what he's saying here. May you ever be captivated by her. Isn't it interesting it doesn't say by her breasts, considering the context? It doesn't say her body. May you ever be captivated by her love. Well, he's talking about, it's really clear. May your fountain be blessed. Your cistern, once, not overflowing in the street. Her breast. he's clear about what he's talking about. But it's not just this physical act like animals. It's a celebration of intimacy. May you be captivated by her love, this exclusive love. Don't overflow in the streets. And what does it say in our passage? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife and the wife to her husband. And if you do stop, there should be a frequency. But if you do, only because of prayer, only fasting for a season for prayer. Now listen, I've heard a lot of reasons, and I'm sure you've probably heard a lot of reasons people won't have sex. I have yet to have anybody say, because of prayer, <laughs> headaches, tired. And listen, if your spouse says to you, I'm in a season of fasting right now, see, the passage says mutual agreement here. So we need to talk through this a little bit. <laughs> but what you see is that what we're talking about here is more than just a physical act. The physical act is actually a celebration of an intimate relationship. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is this, then how do we foster that kind of intimacy? If we want to have the kind of sex that God desires for us to have, the way that he's designed for it to be had, if we want to reclaim this, restore this as a church, how do we foster the kind of intimacy we should have in our marriage relationships? And so I've jotted down a few points, and just so you know, these points could actually apply to your relationship with God as well. But the first one is this, that, that intimacy is intensified in a secure relationship. Intimacy is intensified in a secure relationship. And you go to that verse that I just read, what does he say here in, in verse 2? Because of se- sexual temptation, temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his 
and you can underline this, own wife, and each woman her own husband, one. And Jesus later says, what man is joined or together, or what God has joined together, let man not separate. He's talking about an exclusive relationship here. He's alluding to you that passage that he quotes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, but he's alluding to what I already mentioned at the beginning of creation, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. What I didn't read to you, maybe we'll put it up on the screen this time, is verse 25. Verse 25 oftentimes doesn't get quoted at, at marriages or ceremonies, and it says this, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. <laughs> Why? Well, sure, there was no sin. Of course, they weren't, there was no shame, right? But try to put yourself in their situation. What else was there? What were the factors that were there? What were the circumstances surrounding the situation? They were entering into a covenant relationship with one another that was a completely and totally exclusive. Adam had never even seen another woman. There was no other woman at that point. Talk about a secure relationship. How do, how do we restore that with the sex-saturated culture that we've been in? And you know the answer, the only answer that we have is through covenant. Covenant relationship of an exclusive relationship. And just think about this truth. It's just the truism of it. Let's step out of a marriage relationship for a minute. When are you most likely to be vulnerable with somebody? It's when you think that they're safe. That's why some people want to talk to their pastor because you're like sworn to confidentiality, right? Or you talk to your lawyer in a criminal situation because they're sworn, to count, they're safe in that situation. But just think about in your relationships. The safer the relationship, the more likely you are to share stuff. The more likely you are to be more vulnerable. And that means intimacy level raises. Because you share, they share, the intensity of the intimacy grows in that situation. And so whether it's a small group, in our small group, sometimes we close small groups in our church not because they're at capacity, because the small group leader calls our church and says, hey, the kind of stuff that we're talking about, it would be weird for us to bring guests in all the, all the time. And so, so that the people that are already a part of this group feel safe, we're going to close the group. And we'll honor that because we trust the group leaders. Because we want to foster an environment where there's safety. Here's the problem for some of our marriage relationships. Even though we've said the vows and said these things before God, the spouses don't both feel safe. Homework assignment for some of you, you need to talk about this. Do you feel safe? Some don't feel safe because of things that have been brought into the marriage. Some don't feel safe because of things that are being brought into the marriage. Women, could you imagine what it would be like to be the only person that your husband's ever seen? Do you know what the application is this for this man? You can't unsee stuff that you've seen. But your wife should be your standard of beauty. And so if she's got short hair, you don't like long hair. She grows her hair long, yeah, done with that short hair stuff. Like, whatever she is, that's what you like. That's what Adam and Eve had. And there was no shame. How do we restore no shame? We've got to restore our commitment to the covenant, to an exclusive relationship with one another. See, we say big words at wedding ceremonies, but let's be honest. Most of us know most people don't mean them. In sickness and in health, richer and poorer, till death do us part. What do we mean? Until death do us part, really? Or until adultery do us part? Until death do us part or until you don't have a job for a long period of time do us part? Until I decide it's time for a new phase in my life do us part? Here's what some of us need to do today as an application. Redo your vows. If you mean till death do us part, then say that. If you don't mean that, don't say that. 
But if you mean that, do you know what you've just done? You fostered incredible safety. Because what you're saying to your spouse is, I'm not going anywhere. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am here with whatever you do, whatever I, that's not, this isn't a conditional thing. I'm committed to this covenant here. And what you've done is you've just created safety. Some of you need to take divorce off the table. And that's radical, but why wouldn't we be different? What we have is different. See, when we get outside the bounds of what we, what we have been given as this gift, that's when it becomes really dangerous. Like in our house, we've, I've been getting rid of stuff. We've been cleaning out the attic. We tried to have a garage sale. We ended up just donating a whole bunch of stuff. And I've been burning the old taxes. I've got taxes since like ever. And so I've been burning everything from like 2010 earlier out in our backyard because burning's way better than shredding. Just FYI, it's a lot more fun. And so uh, we've got this fire pit and there's these rocks around it. And I'm like, oh, how long have we had this gas? We probably got to get rid of that, poured it in there, put some put some taxes in there, lit that thing on fire, out there moving around with the rake, ended up burning the rake, broke it at any rate, long story short. I went in the house for a moment. I went in the house for just a moment. And then my oldest daughter comes running in. Dad, the backyard's on fire! I hadn't raked the whole backyard yet, and what had happened was some of the debris came flying out, landed on a leaf pile. (laughs) So I got rid of the leaves too. No, it was dangerous. Inside the fire pit, fire was a good thing. Make s'mores on it, heat from it. It's awesome. Outside the fire pit, not good. So last night I was doing it again just to mess with my daughter. This is extra bonus material for you. I said, oh, Ella, the trampoline's on fire. What? No, just kidding, just kidding. See, fire inside the fire pit, good thing. Sex inside of marriage, good thing. Outside, dangerous. I read one guy who said, Having sex outside of marriage is like robbing a bank. You get something, but eventually you'll pay. Some of you are paying right now the lack of intimacy in your marriage because of things that happened before you were married or things that have happened since you've been married where you went outside the marriage. So how do you restore that? Restore the covenant. Some of you need to recommit your vows. When I heard that statement about the bank robber, it reminded me of a story I read in Christianity Today a few years ago. I think it was 2014. It's a story of a guy named Sean Hopwood, if you want to look it up. It's a great story. Just the short version is this. He was a Christian. That's how he got in Christianity today. He grew up in the church and was really directionless. Military didn't work out for him. School didn't work out for him. He was hanging out with one of his buddies. His buddies recommended they rob a bank, and so they did and got away with it and robbed four more banks and got away with it until they didn't. He said, I was walking into a Doubletree hotel in the lobby and got tackled by the FBI. All that partying... All that easy flowing money was incredible until I was spending 11 years in prison. That's what sex outside of marriage is like. You get something, but eventually you pay. And so you want to intensify intimacy, intensify the commitment. It's in a secure relationship where the intimacy is intensified. Next point, see from the next verse, is that intimacy grows through giving. Intimacy grows through giving. And I'll just read to you a few verses here in chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. It says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this is probably the most abused portion of chapter 7 in the Bible. Because what people have done, even seminars, people have taught this kind of stuff before, is this, like you go to your spouse and, and yeah, you, would you like to have sex tonight or whatever sweet nothings you whisper into their ear? No, not, well, you belong to me, so 
Can I point something out to you? And it'll stop you if it's like abuse proof in the passage then? It's, it's not yours to take. Look at verse 3. The command, the verb, give. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. It's nobody's to take, it's yours to give. You know, when I first learned this, I went to my wife and I said, I think I have the gift of generosity. She's ready to give. I'm just ready to give here. But, but you know what you, really, what you see here? Now she's like, I want to leave. Oh, man. I don't know he's going to say that. Like, but you, know, you want to take a passage and apply it to this? Romans chapter 12. See if you can outdo one another in honoring one another. That's what it is. It's like a giving game. He says a little bit later, he says, you're not supposed to abstain from this. He said, how often? We'll get to that. Keep listening. We'll get to how often. But he says here, get, you know what this shows us? You can't divorce the gospel from your bedroom. All the gospel truths that we see, see, th- this passage, Paul's not giving here. He's answering a specific question by the Corinthians here. He's not telling us everything there is to know about sex. He's not telling us everything there is to know about marriage. In fact, there are a lot of things that the Bible says about marriage that aren't, aren't right here. Like Ephesians chapter 5, that husbands are supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church. What did Jesus do? And apply this to your bedroom. He pursued you. He came after you. Husbands, pursue your wives. I read one person who said that the sex that will happen sometimes at 10 o'clock at night starts at 10, 10 o'clock in the morning. And it doesn't mean necessarily sweet sexual talking. Sometimes it just means talking. It's going after her. C.S. Lewis said the difference between lust and love is that lust goes after the body. Love goes after the person. Do you want the person? And see, the, the reality is that some of us need to repent because even in marital sex, and we think just because it happened in marriage, that all, it's all of a sudden it's sanctified. It's all good. Here's the reality. That's not necessarily true. If you were coming after to get something, that wasn't God's design for sex. They were there to give, to serve the other person. So some of you have been using your spouse's body basically for masturbation, not sexual intimacy. You need to repent because that wasn't how God designed this. Read Song of Solomon. Read Proverbs 5. Look at what he's saying here, that we're to give to one another. That's the gospel being applied to our marriage. That's Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Consider others better than yourself. What does that look like applied to the bedroom? See, a lot of times we think of the Bible and we're like, oh, I've got to go out and change somebody's tire. I've got to go out and serve in the lobby. The gospel invades every era of our lives. We can't divorce. If we believe, if we're followers of Jesus Christ and we believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ came, gave his life for us. He came on a pursuit of us, seeking to save that which was lost. We were the lost. That he died on the cross to take the wrath of God so we wouldn't have to. He, he didn't come to get something from us. He gave his life for us. Then what does it look like for us to give in the marriage relationship, even in our bedrooms. Or to even take, we're in 1 Corinthians, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, married couples. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is what biblical love looks like. It's patient. Some of you husbands in the pursuit of your spouse and getting to know her heart and coming after her sexually, your pursuit might mean sometimes backing off. Now it's not a good time. Maybe not tonight. Be patient kind, caring for the needs of the other person, keeps no record of wrongs. What would it look like for us to apply biblical love to the bedroom? That's God's plan. And as we give, our intimacy grows. Next point we see here is that intimacy protects marital purity. 
Intimacy in the marriage relationship protects the purity in the marriage. And it's, it's in multiple verses. It was in verse 2 that we've read multiple times. I'll read you again. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality. So it's because of temptation, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse 5, verse 9, they all say it. Now let me say this. I didn't want to start with this one because I didn't want you to think that, that we as a church or the Bible has such a low view of marriage. That it's like, hey, if you're single and you're burning with passion, and we talked about verse 9, Go find the first person who will say yes to you so you can have a sexual outlet. That's not what it's talking about here. In fact, one Bible commentator, he wrote down different things the Bible says about marriage, different reasons for marriage. They all started with a P because that's what preachers do. It's John MacArthur, he says this, based on the first commandment in the Bible, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply, he says marriage is for procreation. Based on Proverbs 5, which I already read to you, so marriage is for pleasure. Based on it's not good for man to be alone, which we mentioned from Genesis, marriage is for partnership, relationship. And based on Ephesians 5, which I've mentioned to you as well, it's, it's a picture of the church. But based on this passage right here, marriage is for purity. It's one of the reasons. And it doesn't mean, let me just say before I even read verse 5, it doesn't mean that if your spouse has an addiction to pornography, if you'd just have more sex with them, they'd stop. So I don't, want you to, I don't want you to misuse this, and there's probably lots of other misuses that, that could be out there, but here's the reality. The, the addiction of the pornography is not a sex issue. That's an idolatry issue. They've got to come to the realization that sex isn't going to satisfy me the way only God can satisfy me. And so you having more and more sex with your spouse isn't going to fix that problem. But what Paul is saying here in this passage is he is saying that you have natural desires. Many of you are burning with passion. And the natural outlet for that is the marriage relationship, the marriage bed. And so that's why he says what he says in verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps, and this is maybe, and there's other reasons, physical reasons, you know, illnesses, things like that. But he says, perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again and then listen to why. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here's what you need to know. Satan wants in your bedroom. Satan wants to destroy you. First Peter chapter 5, he is a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour. And if, if he knows that things are bad in your bedroom and your marriage, guess what he's going to try and attack? He wants to ruin the intimacy. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to kill you. He's going to attack there. He's saying this is a safeguard against Satan in your marriage. This isn't meaning you're sin-proof because you have sex enough times. But it is a safeguard against sexual morality. It's the one that God's given us, and it is a good gift. But here's the problem. Many of us have already blown it in this area. And God can make all things new. He can make you a new creation. He can certainly make your marriage bed a new creation. He can restore virginity. He can deal with sexual abuse problems that have happened in your life. If you've been guilty of sexual morality, you know, 1 John 1, 9, I read at the end of last week's message, says that if you confess your sins, that he is faithful and he is just, he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. All. In the Greek, that means everything. Like, there's not a sin that's not included in that. Cleanse you of all unrighteousness. I told you a little bit of that story of the guy who robbed the bank, Sean. There's more to the story. If you read the whole thing on Christianity Today, you'll see 
He goes to jail for 11 years. He does not have a jailhouse conversion. But the guy in the cell next to him did. The guy next to him was serving 20 years. And he got out and became a pastor. So from prison to pastorate, God could make all things new. And then what happened was Sean got out, and he ended up wanting to marry this girl. He started writing him letters while he was in jail. It was a girl that he had a crush on while they were in high school. But he needed a pastor. So he called his buddy Marty, who he served time with in prison together. Marty said, I'll do premarital counseling with you. And when they got together, Marty wasn't interested in how much do you love each other? Are you really committed? He said, what do you believe about Jesus? Tell me about your relationship with Jesus. Now, Sean had grown up in church, but he didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And Marty told him, he said, I think God's pursuing you. Shared the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead, is offering you eternal life. And Sean said, I left that day. The next day, I couldn't stop thinking to myself, how do you redeem yourself after you've robbed five banks? You know what the answer is? You don't. But Jesus does. Jesus can. And Jesus did in Sean's life. Saved him. Transformed him. Yeah, there were consequences for sin. But he made all things new. He can forgive all unrighteousness. He can forgive your unrighteousness. There's restoration at the cross of Christ. And some of you have had sin that's been brought into your marriage. Some of you have had sin that's happened before you were married. Some of you are right now thinking about singles. Singles, here's an application for you for today's message. Don't do anything today that's going to impact. If you desire to be married at someday, it's going to impact the security of that marriage, the intimacy of that marriage someday. And you can take each one of these points that I've shared with you and apply them to your relationship with God. You're completely secure in your relationship with God. Because you didn't do anything to save yourself. You can't do anything to unsave yourself. And God came after you. He pursued you. As you give your life over to Him, guess what? You grow in intimacy with Him. As you develop intimacy with Him, guess what? You become more pure because you have a a stronger and deeper desire for Him, not the the deceptive things that are unrecognizable. And so you go after Him. He's coming after you. Married couples, married couples, what do we do? What do we do with this message today? Some of us need to renew our vows and talk about what do we really mean And if we really mean that we're fully committed to one another, that we want to foster that security, then then let's say that. And if we don't, let's lay it all out on the table. Let's Let's be honest and transparent with one another what we really mean in our marriage relationships. Some of us need to repent because we haven't been coming to the marriage bed to give. We've been coming to get something, or we haven't even been coming. And so some of us need to repent of what has been happening even in a marital relationship. And we need to also see it It's an opportunity to safeguard against Satan who wants in on your marriage because he wants to destroy you.